thanks for joining me again. This is Gary Zacharias with the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm going to go back and cover a book by Gleason Archer. I've talked about it before. It's called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. It says, Informed Answers to Your Most Troublesome Questions. And uh, it's good. It, it covers things like linguistic and cultural and numerical and all sorts of different considerations. And it's arranged in order of the books of the Bible, so it makes it easy to get through. It's part of a Zondervan Understand the Bible reference series. And they have uh, some really good ones there. So here we go. I wanted to start with the New Testament this time. I, I have covered the book before, but I've covered different places on Moses and Daniel. Uh, this time, let's go to the New Testament. Here's a key question. Why are there differences among the Synoptic Gospels? And of course, Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke that showed Jesus pretty much the same way. John seems a little different. But even these synoptic gospels have some differences. And I thought the Archer approaches it in a good way. <clears throat> he says that um, we have to recognize these authors had different, a different emphasis and different concerns as they told the story of Jesus. So he starts with Matthew. What's Matthew up to? Well, he says Matthew is laying special emphasis on Christ as the Messiah and the King, who is the fulfillment of all the promises and predictions that came out of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's very Jewish-oriented, so he's got a lot of quotations from the Old Testament. And uh, apparently it says that uh, his gospel originally came in Hebrew, and people are scratching their heads a little bit over that, but they said probably that meant that it was a Jewish dialect of Aramaic, and that's what Matthew first appeared in. So later it was translated into Greek, and that's what's come down to us. All right, so that gives you kind of the roots of um, Matthew. It said he makes more frequent references to the laws of Moses than, to, than the other Gospels do, and he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God when he talks about what Jesus said. There's a real Palestinian focus in Matthew's attention to details about Jewish life, the customs and the religious customs that they had. And uh, it says Matthew spends a lot of time talking about Jesus' teaching ministry. Jesus as a rabbi and tends to group logically the themes that Jesus got across in major blocks. There are four examples. And he spends time on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, the, the Olivet Discourse, there's a Sermon on the Plain, the parables, things like that. And they all seem to be very focused uh, on Jewish conditions. What about Mark? Well, Archer says Mark is not really as concerned with Jesus as that messianic prophet as he is as Jesus as the conqueror over Satan and the conqueror over sin and death and sickness. This is the man of action in Mark. He triumphs. He's the suffering servant, and he focuses on Jesus' dynamism. Jesus is always getting ready and going off and doing things and his redemptive deeds rather than his philosophy or his teaching. So the action moves much more rapidly in Mark, and the character, uh, characteristic word is straight away. Right? Jesus is always doing something straight away. So uh, said this book seems to take pains to explain Jewish religious customs to his probably his Gentile listeners, his Gentile readers. So, for example, in Mark 7, 3, you can take a look at that. I won't take the time now. But one author characterized Mark's emphasis by saying that Mark is concerned to present Jesus as the Son of God, the glorious Son of Man, and the Redeemer. Well, what about Luke? 
Now, Luke is an educated Greek person, a physician. He took special interest in the details of Christ's miracles of healing. He wanted to present a comprehensive, big-picture, historically accurate biography of Jesus as the perfect Son of Man, bringing out all of his excellencies. And then I think this is key, that he focuses on the tenderness Jesus showed in dealing with different people who are down and out. And I stressed that when I was teaching the Bible as literature for my college class, that I had them read Luke rather than Matthew or Mark, because Luke seemed more warm and sympathetic toward uh, the poor and toward women and things like that. Luke has more details of Jesus' life than the other evangelists. Um, he He's the only one that for example, records the angelic annunciation to Mary, the shepherds coming to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus. He's the only one that presents uh, Jesus' uh, going to the temple as a baby, the prophecy of Simeon, his adventures in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. He's the one that tells us about Jewish, uh, the Jesus' rejection by the angry mob at Nazareth. He's the only one that talks about the story of the raising of the dead son of the widow of Nain. So much interest there in Luke is devoted to dealing with women and children and his tender regard, uh, people like Mary and Martha, uh, and for ones that were considered outcasts, like Samaritans and the publicans, the lepers, the weeping women, uh, the repentant thief that hangs there, all of that's from Luke. And Luke uses all sorts of terms, 180 terms that occur nowhere else so that he can be accurate and precise. Many of them are rare and technical. He, he talks about the various types of diseases, for example. So Luke is preeminently the gospel of Christ's humanity and his love and his tenderness as the Son of Man. But at the end of that section here, Archer tries to stress that all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tried to accurately relate the events of Christ's career and the words coming out of his mouth. Now, they would pick out only things that were pertinent to their particular approach, but they don't disagree about Jesus' life. So he said, each one is on the alert for details that would fit in with his own special view of Jesus. So you might think of it kind of like, instead of a photograph of Jesus, they're doing a portrait of Jesus with things that they stress that, that stand out. So he says, uh, as far as credibility and verification, we don't need to worry about them. They do follow the same basic ideas about Jesus. Okay, so that was his introduction to the New Testament uh, four Gospels. Let me then go to the book of Matthew and tell you a few of the things that, he, that he's dealing with, struggles that people have. For example, in Matthew 1.6, Jesus' ancestry is traced through Solomon, but in Luke 3, it's traced through Nathan. What's going on there? Uh, so he says, well, Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, who himself was a descendant of King David. Okay, so Jesus becomes a legal heir. That's important. And so, for example, he says, take a look at verse 16 in chapter 1 of Matthew. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So it doesn't say that Joseph begot Jesus. He is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. But if you go to Luke 3, it seems to record the genealogical line of Mary herself, carried all the way back to Adam. And it says it seems to be implied by Luke 3.23, Jesus being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. So it indicates that Jesus was not really 
the biological son of Joseph, even though the public probably thought about that. So it calls attention to the mother, Mary. And so her genealogy is thereupon listed, starting with Heli, who is actually Joseph's father-in-law. His own father, Joseph's own father, was Jacob. So that's what's going on there. Matthew gives us the ancestry of Jesus through Joseph, and that was important. He had to be an heir of the king of Israel, David. And then in Luke, we get the genealogy through Mary. Okay, so there is one issue that people have struggled with. Here's another one. I'm going to move on a little bit further here. This is, why do Matthew and Luke differ in the order of Christ's temptations? All right, so is this a uh, problem? Matthew says the second of the three temptations was to jump from the pinnacle of the temple, and the third was, here's the world empire, you know, bow down to me, you can have it all. So that's Matthew. Luke switches that. Number two is the offer of the empire, and number three is the jump. So it's a, it's a discrepancy. So how do you account for that? He said, well, it's been an often debated issue, but he said it's not really that unique. He said there are other places where the timeline is changed around. He said, look at the cursing of the fig tree, Matthew 21 and Mark 11. So he said in each case, there are some differences, but it comes back to what the writers are trying to do when they portray Jesus. So Matthew, for example, he says, take a look at Matthew. He said, look at the adverbs and conjunctions that are used. Now, of course, I don't know adverbs and conjunctions when it comes to Greek, so I just have to trust Gleason Archer here. He's a Bible uh, scholar. So he said, in the case of Matthew, there's a really definite emphasis on the sequence. So it says, then, that's the word tot in uh, Hebrew, then the devil takes him, etc., etc. Then he doesn't cast himself down, and then it says, Again, the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdom. So Archer says those two adverbs are very specific. So they, they're in the, the right order according to time. But he said, look at Luke. Luke uses chi, the word and, that introduces the second temptation. And the third temptation is led in with another word, but it means and or but. So it doesn't seem as emphatic regarding emphasis uh, as far as a sequence, a time sequence. He said, think of it like this. A little girl celebrates Thanksgiving. Somebody says, uh, what'd you have for food? Oh, we had apple pie and turkey and everything. Well, no, she hooks them together with apple pie and turkey and everything. That's not the order that she ate them in. She ate the turkey first, probably, and then had the apple pie. So we shouldn't reproach Luke because he reversed the order because it was probably Luke that did the change. He said, we may kind of decide that Matthew adhered to the actual historical sequence. But for Luke, there was another reason that he was doing that. He put the temptation in a different order because it was a ascending order of testings for him. Okay, so I thought that was an interesting comment. Let's go to another one here. We have a couple more minutes. How about uh, Jesus? Why did he always talk about himself as the son of man? Why was that the most popular thing to call himself? He says we first see that in Matthew 8. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, how many times is it in the Bible? Well, it's used of Christ 32 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 26 in Luke, and 12 in John. So it's all through the four Gospels. Now, Jesus doesn't ever refuse the title Son of God. I mean, he's addressed by God the Father at his baptism. He's okay with that. 
He's, he's addressed by God on the Mount of Transfiguration as a son of God. He's okay with that. He doesn't refuse that term when the demons hail him. In Mark 3, you're the son of God. Or when Satan challenged him, if you're the son of God. And the disciples called him truly the son of God when he stilled the storm. So he never rejects that. He never rejects that. But he keeps coming up with this reference, son of man, which is coming from Daniel. This is not Jesus saying, I have dirt under my nails, I'm just one of you. No, it's coming from Daniel. And I think it's worth quoting Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God Almighty on his throne, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So this is a celestial figure, and that's the one that Jesus identifies himself with. So basically he's announcing, in the case of his trial, when he calls himself the Son of Man, that there's going to be a future trial someday in which Caiaphas and all these others are going to stand condemned, and then sentence would be pronounced on them, and they'd be led away. So why was the Messiah, here's the key question, I guess, why would the Messiah, back in Daniel and then now in the New Testament, why would he be represented as a glorified human being rather than the king of glory? Well, we go back to the incarnation, Archer says. That's indispensable for man's redemption. The fallen race of Adam can't have sins atoned except by a sin bearer who has to represent him as a real human being. The Old Testament term for redeemer, which is, of course, what we're talking about here, implies kinsman redeemer. So he had to be, according to the Old Testament, had to be related by blood to the person whose cause he took over. I mean, think about in Ruth. Uh, but it says, God revealed himself to Israel as a redeemer of his covenant people. But how the people of ancient Israel must have scratched their heads. How could God ever qualify as their kinsman redeemer. He was God. He was separate from us. He was their father by creation, sure, but kinsman redeemer implies a blood relationship on a physical level. Now, how could that happen? Well, we find out in the New Testament, God had to become one of us to redeem us from the guilt and the penalty of our sin. And then sure enough, John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God, as God, couldn't forgive us for our sins unless the sins were fully paid for. Okay, so that's, that's a problem. It was only as a man that God in Christ could furnish a satisfactory atonement. For only a man, only a person, a true human being could properly represent the human race. But you don't want to have just a human dying on the cross. A redeemer also had to be God because this is a sacrifice of infinite value. That's got to compensate for eternal hell that our sin demands according to divine justice. So what a tough thing. You have to combine the two. You have to have a real person, a real human, but you also have to have infinite God. And so only God could have devised a way of salvation that allows him to be just and also the justifier of us, the ungodly, instead of sending us to everlasting torment that we deserve. So what an amazing thing. I just love that. I think that's so important. So the, the New Testament, when Jesus stresses himself, calls himself the Son of Man, that's a genuineness of his humanity. That's 
leading Jesus to talk about himself as a son of man. The principal reason was, of course, Daniel 7. But it's because of God's mercy and justice combination that is shown there when Jesus as man dies for us and as God, he suffers infinitely for us. So anyway, once again, the book is called Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. Uh, it's it's a almost, uh, do I dare say, a fun read where you can just kind of dip in and out and find something of interest to you. So it covers the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I think you'd find it uh, useful to get a hold of. It's been around for a while now, and again, that's good because you can probably find something um, at a used bookstore. Let's see, it's been around for almost 40 years, so um, I'm sure it's out there. It's worthwhile. Well, thank you, and uh, we'll talk again soon.